Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hey guys, this is Rasmus. Uh, I'm representing Chelsea on the podcast, and you can find me on Twitter, where um, I tweet about Chelsea and various other football things, uh, at Chelsea Rumors. Hi, I'm Richard. I'm a Manchester City fan. I'm also on Twitter at Richard the Burns, where um, I often tweet links to my articles that I write for Yahoo about City. There's two of those a week. Um, and I can also be found on the Blue Moon podcast, um, who also have a Twitter account, which is at Blue Moon Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, guys. We all won at the weekend, so this should be quite a chipper episode. Um, Rasmus will lead in with you. Chelsea get a big win, uh, maybe not necessarily compared to opponent, but compared to league table, as it looks like you've basically all but secured title hopes. Uh, but what transpired in this match, aside from what was a very inevitable goal from Josh King? Yeah, so apart from that Joshua King goal, which was inevitable, as you say, um, it was really good to have Victor Moses back. Uh, definitely a far better option as right wing back um, than Pedro and, and even Aspilicueta. Uh, don't get me wrong, Aspilicueta, he's, he's brilliant at, at right wing back, but um, that's only really defensively. Going forward, he he doesn't add half as much as Victor does. Um, and it's, he's, he just seems to be better off playing that centre-back role on the right um, in that uh, three, three-man defence. Um, Moses, on the other hand, he's, he's just a really dynamic player. He gets up and down the pitch and he just never seems to tire and it's... I think Conte really loves him uh, because he injects so much energy into our side. So it was really, it was really good to have him back, and you could see the difference that he made. Uh, he played a part in, in perhaps not the third goal, but the two others. He, he was, he was quite important. Um, obviously, Conte's pass for for Hazard's second goal was something that really stood out as well because I saw there was a debate on Twitter whether. Kante had a proper football brain, if such a thing exists. Um, I think he silenced a few people there because that was just a, it was a phenomenal pass. We would have raved about it if uh, if Fabregas had hit that. And to see in Godo Kante do things like that, it just want, it makes you wonder what's his limit. You know, he he, he seems to be able to do everything. Uh, David Luiz was a bit shaky at the back. Uh, he almost scored that spectacular own goal and it, it required a, a really good save from Courtois. Um, and then unlucky with the deflection on on the actual goal. But yeah, he, he seems to be, 
I mean, for the first five minutes, I was worried that we were going to have the old David Luiz back, you know, the spectacular but not very reliable uh, defender that we all love. But at the same time, we sort of get nervous when he's on the ball because we never know what he's up to. Um, but it wasn't to be. Uh, I mean, he, he he was really solid for the second in the second half, at least. And throughout the season, I, I have nothing but but praise for him because when he he came back, people were talking about oh, you know, panic by last minute. And I guess it was in a way, because I think our main target was Napoli's uh, Koulibaly, or however you pronounce that. Um, so to get David Luiz, it, it was a very last minute decision. I remember the story broke only a day before he actually signed. But fair play to him. He's just really got on with it and he's done really well. And it's just so nice to see that everyone in our starting 11 date they play a vital part in, in you know, the fantastic form we're showing this season. And uh, and it was just obvious. That's why I highlighted Victor Moses that when he was out, there was sort of a balance missing in the side. I mean, I know we beat Manchester City, but you could see that it wasn't. It just wasn't the same without him, especially against uh, Crystal Palace, where Pedro was really struggling. Um, so it was, it, he was he was the standout man for me. Maybe not the best player on the pitch, but I'm I'm just so impressed with with what he's done this season, and I have nothing but praise for him. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Pedro there, and I have a question. It's about this weird kind of three way timeshare between Pedro, Fabregas, and Willian. Which of those three would you prefer to be played? Because right now, as I say, it, it's kind of a toss up each week. Um. I think Pedro's earned it the most. I think he's been really, really important for us this season. Fabregas, I'm a huge fan of him as well. Um, but at the same time, when when you see what the other players are capable of, maybe the fact that he um, is, you know, he, he he's he's not very good at at he doesn't have a lot of pace basically, and so sometimes defensively he'll he'll need help from Kante or Matic or whatever. Um, and then you have you have people like David Luiz. He can he can hit a really good pass as well. And Kante, as I mentioned, he showed it as well. He's capable. Well, he's capable of. And uh, it's just maybe Fabregas is is becoming slightly redundant for the side. Uh, but at the same time, he's just he's got immense footballing ability, and I think he's he's a brilliant player. And, and I wish we could I wish we could field twelve players because then he would he would play every week. Uh, William, on the other hand, I do like him quite a lot, and I think he takes an awful lot of stick from some fans. Um, but compared to Pedro, he's he's one step behind for me. So, as you know, if I had to rank them, I would say Pedro would definitely be one of the first names on on the team sheet for me. And Fabregas, he would he would get inside quite often as well. And William would only really get inside whenever Pedro was unavailable. All right, now I'm going to come over to you here, Richard, talking about Manchester City. Uh, it seemed like a pretty cruise control win. Is that the way you saw it? Yeah. Um, the, I was quite impressed because they brought together um, some of the things that we've maybe not been great at over the season or where things have been threatening to be quite good and then occasionally take a step backwards. And they sort of brought the whole package together against Hull. So... They were relatively ruthless. 
Whereas in recent weeks, we've gone back to what we were doing at the start of the season, where we've been creating loads of clear-cut chances, but missing them. Um, the, the Monaco defeat and the, the FA Cup win at Borough spring to mind, the nil-nil draw at, at home to Stoke. OK, we won the Borough FA Cup game, but we we should have been out of sight by half-time and we weren't. Um, against Hull, although we didn't create as many clear-cut chances, we put away what we did have, which was very reassuring. Um and I thought defensively, apart from the goal that Hull scored at the end when the game was already wrapped up, we defended very well against the counter-attack because that's what Hull set up to do. They were um, they were very precise in the counter-attacks. It was clearly something that they'd, um, you know, they'd worked on and it's, it's a way that they play. Um, and a lot of teams come to the Etihad and, and see that as the best way to get at us. And typically, um, they've been right. We've, we've been pretty poor at defending them. But we weren't yesterday, whether it was Kolarov holding up a man whilst his teammates got back, which hasn't always been his strength because his reading of the game is generally pretty poor, or whether it was Stones getting um, timely blocks in. Just everything sort of seemed to come together defensively. And that's not to suggest that they were that Hull were threatening to overrun us at any point, because they weren't. And they'll probably look at it and be disappointed that they didn't create anything more clear-cut right until the end. Um, but it just felt like a like an improvement there and we should really have had another clean sheet out of it our clean sheet record i think has been a bit underrated on since new year i think we're on nine clean sheets out of 17 games which bearing in mind how things were in the first half of the season is a, a massive upturn but there's also been a case of that uh, maybe papering over the cracks a little bit um uh, yeah and the the only um or the main downside was that we conceded a goal late on that once again came through a Claudio Bravo error. Um, if we're being charitable, we could point out that John Stones was stood in front of him and uh, blocking his uh, blocking his sight. But the shot was hit so meekly, and um, if we're not being charitable and just being straight, even as it came at him, regardless of what's in front of him, his body isn't set in any way to move for a shot. Um, and it... It passes by him uh, incredibly slowly and he still gets a hand to it, um, but is incapable of keeping it out. And so for I, I'm all on board for a keeper that's good with his feet um, and I, I'm, I fully support Guardiola's reason for changing goalkeepers, whilst it might not have been the decision I would have made. Um, I'm satisfied with the reasons that he made it, but... The keeper that he's brought in is a goalkeeper that doesn't save shots that are on target, which is a bit of a problem, really. And there's no doubt that he, he helps our build-up play. For our second goal yesterday uh, on, on Saturday, every single player touched the ball and Bravo uh, in the build-up. And Bravo was important to that. Um, but you've got to be able to save shots because his defence don't appear to have any confidence in him. And he clearly doesn't have any confidence. He looks completely shot at the moment. Um, so he is, he's, it causes a problem. I can only assume that the reason Guardiola brought him back in for the whole game was because he anticipated Hull maybe not doing a whole lot of attacking. And he wanted to just build him up a bit of confidence ahead of the FA Cup semi-final, which I'm sure Bravo will play in because he is currently our cup goalkeeper. Um, but instead with the game won and no pressure on at all, he still managed to um, to make a bit of a howler uh, for which he received plenty of criticism. So that was the one downside. Uh, but they were overall, uh, I think you you described it as possibly being in, in cruise control. 
uh, Kev, and I would generally agree with that. It wasn't the, the hardest game we'll have, but there were a lot of signs that we are fully adapting uh, to, to Guardiola's ideas. Aguero is a case in point for that because obviously there's been a lot of speculation that Guardiola was looking to move him on or that he wasn't happy with what he was doing. But actually, what we've seen since uh, Gabriel Jesus got injured was that Aguero's come back and he's he seems to be on board with what Guardiola's asking of him. He's, the work that he's doing is different. It wasn't that he wasn't working hard before, but he's running for the team and... and the way that he presses is certainly different and more in line, clearly more in line with what Guardiola is asking of him, which you can tell because Guardiola is very praiseful of him after the game now. Uh, I think he scored 10 goals in 10 games. So we've not lost any of his goal scoring output for the, uh, for the, the change in his style. Uh, and it, that's just like a microcosm of if he can change Aguero, who was already one of the best strikers in the world and get him on board with what he's trying to do then it's a real positive sign that sort of everything else is ticking along, maybe a little bit slower than a lot of people were hoping for. But um, realistically, there was a whole lot of work for Guardiola to do that was maybe underappreciated at the start of the season. But he's slowly but surely getting there. Mm. Um, and, and the second goal, with every player touching the ball, uh, as, as I mentioned before, um, and then that the goal then being finished by a wide player breaking into the box and beating a couple of men and, and feeding a, a lethal striker is pretty much Guardiola 101. Um, and so the opposition might not be the, ha- <clears throat> the hardest that will come up against this season or that we have come up against this season. But just in terms of that style bedding in, there are a, a lot of positive signs now. Yeah, uh, for uh, the follow-up question for you, I'm I'm actually going to take it a different direction. Uh, As an American, we are very familiar with Carly Lloyd in the women's game, which Americans seem to care slightly more about, probably because we're much better uh, in the women's game than in the men's. Uh, But she has joined Manchester City's women's team, and now uh, you are going to be in the Champions League semifinal, I think it is, against Lyon. Yes. I'm just curious to see what kind of impact that's had on the fan base, if if at all, and if everybody at the club is, is supporting that, or if it still feels kind of separated, like a separate entity uh, from Manchester City Football Club on the whole. Well, yeah, it, it's an interesting way of, uh, of framing the question, because it does feel, there's no doubt that it feels a little bit separate. But what I like about it is it is the women's team are very clearly, to me at least, a part of Manchester City. So the way City operate now with the whole City football group model where we have Melbourne City in uh, in Australia and obviously New York City in New York and the, a couple of other clubs around the world that are under the City football group that we rebrand and change them to our colours and make them put City in the name or obviously in the case of New York, start a whole new club. Um City really, really promote that stuff. And there's a, a lot of supporters, which I personally, I, you know, I'm not one of them, but a lot of supporters get really on board with it and are quite active in, in watching those other teams or sister clubs as they, they get referred to. Um, and I don't buy that. But the women's team are very clearly Manchester City. They play on uh, at the, um, at our academy stadium, just like literally a stone's throw from the Etihad. Um, and they, they play in a city kit, um, and they, they they play in Manchester, and it is getting it is getting more popular. Um, but I, I couldn't lie and say when you go and watch the men's team that there's loads of chatter about how well the women's team are doing because there isn't. Um, but in terms of what you see on social media, obviously I follow a lot of City fans on Twitter, and generally um, it is there's a lot of support out there for them. And when we have 
like the the cup finals or uh, like the the title deciding games and stuff like that, then they do uh, they do manage to attract decent crowds to uh, down to the academy stadium where they play. Uh, and the the achievement of getting to the semi final, I mean, they're the first English women's club to do so, and they've only existed in the the current format for I think this is their fourth season. Last year they did the league and cup double, so. City have pumped, um, in relative terms, a lot of money into this to make it successful. They include the women a lot in the promotional material when they're releasing new kits. You usually have the the women's captain, a lady called Steph Houghton, stood next to company modelling the the modelling the kit as the uh, male team representative. City, I think, really go out of the way to push the women's team, and they are reaping the reward for it. Um, so. I'm a, you know, I, I can't tell you that I'm a, a super fan of it and I go and watch them every week. I've been a couple of times. But in terms of being impressed by what City are doing and hoping that they're successful, I care about it a hell of a lot more than, than some of the other ventures that we're involved in. Mm, interesting. Well, definitely uh, looking forward to seeing if they can concede, succeed in that again because of Carly Lloyd and also because uh, right now it's them and Leicester <laughs> left in Champions League uh, for English clubs. Um as for Tottenham, I just realized that I didn't give you guys time or chance to talk about the midweek matches. I just want to briefly touch on ours because uh, we, by all accounts, could slash should have lost to Swansea 1-0 uh, and then turned it around and won 3-1, which was very rude indeed. Uh, tweeted to that effect and got a lot of <clears throat> love from Swansea fans that I'm not sure were aware that I was a Tottenham fan. Now, I, I have a very, very soft spot for Swansea on the whole. I just don't think all of them <laughs> knew that when I was saying nice things about them. Uh, there may have been more animosity at the time. But um, we finally saw a decent performance out of Jansen, though it was in a sub role. He had a lovely backheeled uh, nutmeg assist. Uh, which then he tried roughly 7,000 times at the weekend. Um, because once you pull that off, you're like, oh, yeah, this is what I do now. Um, none of them nearly as successful. Um, but that was obviously a huge win. And, and I think it's important to bring up because uh, Tottenham in years past lose that match. Um, and I think it does show that there is a bit more depth and, and grit to this team um, then in years past, uh, I was actually talking to a our editor uh, on the way back from Chicago. Oh, shout out to uh, Chicago Spurs on Twitter. Um, was up there at Atlantic uh, for this match. And it was a really fun environment on the whole. But um, we were talking about uh, Tottenham picking up these results the past few weeks. Um, and if we would have done it last year when we were kind of in the title chase with Leicester. Uh, and I'm not sure it's exactly... Uh, corollary because it seems like Chelsea have already won the title and so there's not as much pressure as there was last year where we kept playing uh, either before or directly after Leicester which provided different kinds of pressure the one of having to get a positive result before you have to watch and see what they do and then having to respond after the use to pick up points Um, but it it has been like a different atmosphere this year so I'm not sure there is um, super direct evidence that way but without worrying about title ramifications or top four ramifications, like Swansea away is the kind of match we used to lose, even though I think I just remembered that we've never lost to them since they came up in the Premier League. But that kind of like tough away atmosphere, we would sometimes crumble down the stretch. And I do think it's a very positive sign that we're not doing that at the moment. Um, obviously, fast forward uh, to the weekend. We were facing a very heavily depleted Watford side uh, and we're expecting to win. And summarily did. Uh, um, there was a joke going around that said, uh, only great goals today, lads. And uh, 
that was kind of evidenced by the kinds of finishes we saw. The Ali goal to open it was just gorgeously taken. It, it kind of re- reminded me of a much-forgotten Chadley goal against Crystal Palace, and it's much-forgotten because it was the third goal, and it was the goal after Della Ali's volley-volley strike to the bottom corner. Um, so that goal was never going to get any love, but it was from a pretty similar position, curling over the keeper, top right corner, etc. Um, so that was a great goal. Sun obviously had a good match with two goals. Inarguably should have had four, um, but muffed a couple of chances, pushed one wide, hit one off the crossbar, which was pretty frustrating. He got taken off while on the hat trick, and you could just read the the <laughs> adorable frustration, if that makes any sense. Like He wasn't angry. He was just like, ah, I very much should have had that hat trick. Um, Eric Dyer gets the other one, just kicked it straight into the ground, much like Forlan at the 2010 World Cup when he did that like three or four times in that tournament. Um, but yeah, so all around great performance from us. Keep the clean sheet. That was it. <laughs> Risk a couple times. Watford, to be fair, were pretty dangerous on the counter at times, uh, but it just seemed like throughout the match they just were getting less and less further forward. Uh, and then, you know, at times in the second half, our entire team was in their half. Um, but yeah, pick up your points. Harry Kane came on as a substitute. There was a lot of uh, dismay uh, at the Chicago bar there um, between people saying, do you just give him 10 minutes to get him back on the pitch? Do you give him 30 minutes so he's actually in like real match situations instead of just kind of garbage time? Or do you just save him for the Bournemouth match, which I would have liked because I'm going to be there for that. Um, I'm still not sure if there is a quote unquote best way to handle a player in that situation. Um but, uh, you know, <laughs> no harm, no foul. He didn't pick up an injury or anything. Watford's players were sliding around and putting in some late challenges at that point, which is some of the reason for some of the hesitancy from from the fans was wanting to make sure that he wouldn't get injured in his first start back. But uh, I don't want that to take away from just how ridiculous Harry Kane's injury uh, recovery time is because he is now back within a month after he was supposed to be out for seven to eight weeks. Um, and this is not the first time he's beaten his timetable back. And that's that's just so great to see. <laughs> it seems like Lukaku has uh, locked up the golden boot for himself. But let, let's see if Kane can't put a couple of good matches together here and uh, see if he can really push that and try to go for it two straight years. Uh, but regardless, the fact that Kane's even up there, with I think I saw it was like 300 or some fewer minutes played than any of the other strikers around him in terms of goals it is very, very impressive. Um, and I'm personally hoping Kane can break the 20 uh, goal mark because he'll be the first uh, English player in quite some time uh, to have three straight 20 goal seasons. So uh, hoping he can manage that. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't, right? (laughs) Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, and now uh, on to the topic. Uh, mentioned during Rasmus's thing, this win pretty much sealed up uh, the title as of the midweek win against Manchester City. If they had dropped points in either of those heading to Manchester United, then maybe things are up in the air, but it, it feels kind of settled now. So putting that out of mind, what Premier League storyline or, or race are you really going to watch through the end of the season? Is it Arsenal potentially dropping out of the top four finally? You have Sunderland who look like they're finally going to get relegated, no disrespect, but man, that's been coming for a while. Just the relegation fight on the whole, like you have Swansea who looked like they were going to push for staying up and now have had a few rough results in a row. Just what intrigues you really from now to the end of the season? Well, first of all, I'm going to I'm gonna have to disagree with you for uh, just a little bit. And I think basically I'm just not that confident that the title's all locked up for Chelsea just yet. Mm. Because um, we do have some tricky fixtures coming up, and I think I think you guys have some fairly straightforward ones. I know you have Arsenal and Manchester United, but those are both, both at, at home. home, right? Yeah. And Arsenal are just not doing well this season. They're, I mean, their collapse since I guess December or something like that has been quite spectacular. The defense is taking standards. a big step back this season. They, yeah, it's 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 weird because I remember. When Mustafi he um, he joined, he didn't lose a single game when he started for like twenty games in a row or something, which was incredible. Um, but then since then he's just lost game after game after game, and they've been really really poor. Um, we've got some really tricky fixtures. We're we're playing United away next. Obviously that's uh, that's a draw because it's at Old Trafford, so it's got to be a draw. And. Um, We've got Everton away, we've got West Brom away, and, you know, West Brom, whenever we play them away, I, I, I fear our manager will be sacked the next day because that's basically our tradition, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, you know, that's that's a tricky fixture for me. And our home matches are, are slightly more straightforward with, uh, I think we're playing, I think we're playing uh, Southampton and we're playing Middlesbrough and Sunderland. I can't really remember if we're, how many matches am I up to? I, I don't even know, but they're, they're more straightforward. I remember looking at the fixtures. Um, so if you guys, if you if you drop points against United and Arsenal and we win our home fixtures, then obviously, yeah, we'll be champions. But, you know, it's, it's just, I'm not that confident because we saw what happened against Crystal Palace. And nobody saw that coming. Nobody. I mean, we were we were looking forward to the, to the City game, wondering what, how that was going to go. We weren't even considering that we might lose to Crystal Palace. And maybe that's actually what went wrong, you know. Maybe the players were getting a bit complacent against them because they they were focused on, on the City game three uh, three days later. But hopefully we'll have learned something from that and just treat it as a cup final every time we play from now on. And then the title should be, should be locked up. Mm. Um, apart from that, I'm really looking forward to Arsenal dropping out of the top four. That's probably the main story for me. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I can't see them finishing in the top four. I really can't. Um, I would even suspect that United have a better chance of finishing in the top four than they do. 
and I don't think they're gonna they're gonna manage it um, either. So I think the top four races is quite interesting uh, because it's it's a bit of a shakeup, isn't it as well? I know that United haven't really been regular top four finishers of late, uh, but Arsenal have been there what seventeen years in a row or something, mm. and that's an incredible record they're about to lose because I really think they're gonna do. I think I think you guys are gonna finish above them. Which is also an incredible story, and you must. You won't be hear me thrilled. saying it, but that would be me. <laughs> you, yeah, you you must be pretty thrilled at that prospect as well, and uh, and I I imagine you you're looking forward to the game that you're playing against them uh, at home in a few weeks. I I think the relegation race. I don't really see that much happening. I, I think the bottom three are the are the ones that are going to go down now. I don't really see that changing at all, really. So um, I think the top four is is what I'm going to be, apart from Chelsea, of course, apart from whether we're actually going to screw this up. Um, and then obviously there's the FA Cup as a semi-final against uh, Spurs as well, which is really exciting. But um, the top four races, it, 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 I think it's going to be a, an intense few weeks that we're going to that we're approaching now. So that that's really exciting for me. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, the the one team that I'm kind of keeping an eye on in terms of the legation fight is Bournemouth, who, aside from Josh King and Ryan Fraser to an extent, if you're just looking at young talent getting minutes and performing well, um, Bournemouth have us uh, at the weekend. And then while they don't look like crazy difficult fixtures, they're playing Middlesbrough, who, who are fighting for safety, Sunderland, who aren't fighting but want safety, <laughs> Stoke, Burnley, who were there. That, oh, actually, I think Burnley are like 12th right now, now that I think about it. They um, are 12th, yeah. Yeah, but they have Leicester away as well. I was saying, Bournemouth have an interesting run. Palace, by the way, have a horrible run through the end of the season. But, <laughs> Their next match is Arsenal, Leicester, Liverpool, because Leicester are actually good again. Arsenal, Leicester, Liverpool, Tottenham, Burnley, City, Hull, and United. Wow, that is actually quite incredible. But at the same time, they're... They're, they've played two matches less than, than most of the teams around them. So if they True. can just pick up a few points there, that should leave them in a pretty yeah. decent position. I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. The bottom three seem like the bottom three. I'm just like there. There are a couple of teams that could get dragged into it if a couple of things go wrong. Yeah, that's football. You, you really never know what's going to happen at the end of the season. As we talked about, Sunderland they've pulled it off year after year. The great escape. I, don't, I do not see it happening this this year. They're ten points behind Hull and seven and seventeenth. Um, but obviously, yeah, Swansea they're they're the ones to watch. So I, th- I think if anything's going to change, it's it's going to be the, them. Yeah, yeah, because Middlesbrough just can't score. They just can't yeah. score goals. They've scored one goal less than Lukaku has now. Oh wow, that's a stat. I think I think Middlesbrough are still a top six defense now. You would hope yep. so. Yeah. Yep. And But they just can't score. Literally last and goal scored by six. Um, so that's obviously not something that you're looking forward to. Um, all right, Richard, uh, what, what are you really looking at towards the end of the season here? I mean, I can only really echo everything that you've already said. Uh, for me, the, the real interest is in what happens with Arsenal uh, and, and to a point, United. I think United are interesting because they've got the juxtaposition of playing for the the desperate for Champions League qualification, which is what 
Mourinho was brought in to to achieve this shit. <clears throat> and they've got two ways of going for it. They can keep going for top four, which isn't, I mean, they're only three points, uh, sorry, four points behind us. And they've got a game in hand and we've still got to play them at the Etihad. So United are by no means out of the top four race, but they do draw far too many games. They, they don't lose any, but they draw far too many. Um, but they can also qualify by winning the Europa League. And on paper, they're probably the strongest team left in the Europa League, I think. That's not to say that they've got an easy run to it, because they haven't. But they must fancy their chances. And so whether they focus on one more than the other, uh, I don't know. That would be a very ununited thing to do, to let the league position slip, to focus on winning what is essentially a second-rate trophy but for the Champions League qualification. Um, I think it's interesting to see how Mourinho manages that. And they're also, they interest me because I think Mourinho, I think his name, and rightly so, his name is counting for a lot at United. If this was Moyes uh, three years ago, or if it was Van Gaal of the last couple of years, spending a record-breaking number of days in sixth place would not have been acceptable. Uh, for for any other manager, and I mean quite rightly, I think they're accepting that rebuilding th- that club is a longer term project, and that maybe Mourinho is he might not be, but they seem to accept that he needs a bit more time to really make them a Champions League proposition again. Um, but I just find the whole outlook on it quite interesting because there's no way that another manager. Um, would have got away with it in quite the same way as, as Mourinho has done. Uh, so, and obviously, you know, make, make no bones about it. I'm I'm hoping that they don't make the Champions League because that's funnier as a City fan. Um, Arsenal, I uh, I don't think they'll make top four. I think they, this has to finally be their year of dropping out. I, I thought that at the start of the season that they would that this would be the year that they didn't make it, and then they sort of started to make me doubt that because they had, as they always do, the, the sort of impressive run for a while. And I couldn't really see how they would drop out completely the top four. But they just... Every season for them is Groundhog Day, but a little bit worse. And it just seems too toxic there now. I, I don't think um, there's there's anything going for them, really. They had the draw with us last weekend that really didn't do either team any favours. Um, when we were probably there for the taking, they didn't push on and do it. So, but equally, like I don't know, they, they fell behind to us twice, and okay, they rallied to equalise, but there was just no, there wasn't really much about them. So, I don't see how they can finish top four, and that to me feels quite dramatic because they are, they are a top four team. It's what I've, I've grown up not knowing them as, as anything other really is knowing that Arsenal is anything other than a team that qualifies for the Champions League and if Wenger goes which still seems a bit in the balance then that's it's a whole dramatic story and um, a massive change of the guard and uh, an end of an era in the Premier League the last long-standing manager and if he stays it'll be interesting to see the rebuilding job because there's one required and, and I don't think he's the man for it so they're an interesting club Arsenal um and that's, I suppose, the main story that I'm watching. I agree that the relegation battle is probably the bottom three will stay as they are, but Swansea are the ones to watch. Um, and I really hope Hull stay up after the uh, now famous Paul Merson rant about foreign managers and Marco Silva, <laughs> who has instantly made him look like the, the idiot that he is. He's, he, Marco Silva, the job he's done there is incredible. And I'm sure everybody's seen uh, the stat about Marco Silva's home record, something like he hasn't lost at home in three years at three different yeah. clubs. 
I'm um, quite. I'm sure there was a stat as well this weekend that since, and I could have misread this because it astonished me. But since he came in, apparently Hull have earned more points than we have. That yeah, I think yeah, I think I saw they were like fourth or fifth. Yeah, it's yeah, very they're fourth. They come in. Yeah, oh, that hard? incredible. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I only, I only yeah. thought in the, the context of a comparison to City, I hadn't realised it was that impressive to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, Marco Silva has done an incredible job there. Also, Paul Clement has done a very good job at Swansea as well. The squad was always the problem there. Um, but oh, anyway, for me, I, I do hope Swansea come up. But the question is then, who's dropping down to it? But it's interesting, Richard, that you said you think that United and Arsenal are going to drop out of the top four because that means that you think the top four is going to stay the same. Rasmus, sounds like you think the championship is going to stay the same. So... uh It'll be interesting to see uh, just from here to the end of the season if both of those continue to be true. I tend to agree with both of you. But, Richard, I kind of want to take something you said and throw it back to the group. As well, Jose Mourinho getting away with that sixth-placed run. Um, they are in run for Europa League, but, you know, Van Gaal won the FA Cup the year he was sacked. Um, do, do we still think of Mourinho as, you know, a trophy-winning elite-level manager? Or, or do we think maybe that's behind him? It's a difficult. It's a really difficult question for me because I, I don't really know if if I ever really got over him. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. it's it's been such a strange feeling um, being a Chelsea fan this season and watching Mourinho uh, managing Manchester United. Uh, it's something I never thought I'd see, despite the media um, inventing stories. I really thought, I really think they were inventions at the time about how he cried when he didn't get the Manchester United job and all that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, really good question, but a very, very tough one as well. I'm going to try to remain as impartial as possible, but the fact that Conte has been able to do what he has done this season shows that Mourinho's approach, at least for me is wrong because I think, above anything else, his man management is going wrong. I think he's getting uh, his ego is preventing him from from really fulfilling his potential. That we we've all seen it. Mourinho, for me, he absolutely is an elite tactician. He reads the game well and he plays the mind games really well. Apart from the fact that his players are now sort of fed up with it, and he spent so much money at Manchester United. So he has he has the core of his team. He has the spine of his team. You know he has he's he's brought in a goalkeeper. No, not a goalkeeper. He's brought in a defender. He's brought in two world class midfielders, and he's brought in Slatan Ibrahimovic, who is you know outperforming everyone else at the age of 35. But apart from Ibrahimovic, nobody else really seems to be clicking, which is very worrying. I find. Obviously, I'm not particularly worried, but I would be if I were a <laughs> Manchester United fan, because he, he really has the spine of his team, and he's really got he's he's got all the players he asked for. He said so himself when the season started. He was so impressed with how the club worked, and you know I was impressed as well, especially um, with Mkhitaryan, who I I believe to be a phenomenal player, just absolutely brilliant player, and the way that he's I mean, if I were a Manchester United fan, I would be incredibly frustrated and I would be thinking, this is De Bruyne all over again. Um, and, you know, yeah. because that was that was probably his biggest mistake as Chelsea manager, selling Lukaku and De Bruyne. Look where they are now. 
Lukaku's the top scorer in the Premier League. And De Bruyne is a phenomenal, phenomenal player. You know, he's, he's in the top 10 offensive midfielders in the world, if you ask me. And he's always carrying the Belgian national team as well. Far more than Eden Hazard is. Uh, I'm not saying that De Bruyne is necessarily better than Hazard. Um, but he's, he's up there. He's on the same level. So uh, I think that Mourinho's ego sort of prevents him from, from you know, really seeing what is so obvious to everyone else. And he, he, want, he wants to be the star a bit too much. Um, he, wants, he wants to run the show. And, you know, it's, it's just not really working out for him. It didn't work out for him last season at Chelsea. He came out and he said, yeah, last, when we won the league, he had gotten the players to perform at a level that was sort of, you know, not even natural for them. He, I don't even know, like uh, as if he'd, I don't know, cast a spell on them or something that had made them perform better than they could ever dream of doing otherwise if he hadn't been around. Um, you know, that's just a really weird thing to say for a manager. And I think I, I definitely prefer Conte's approach. He, he seems like a very humble man. Uh, he he has a very high standards for his players and he demands a lot. But at the same time, he, you know, he doesn't want to take focus away from them when they perform well. He applauds them, and when they don't perform well, he doesn't. He doesn't go out and say the things to the public as Mourinho, for example, did with Luke Shaw, which I thought was crazy talk. I mean, yeah, yeah, and then he played Luke, the next two matches. Yeah, and he's played well, I thought. And you know, and <laughs> apparently Mourinho was the mastermind behind his performance again, <laughs> just like he was at Chelsea. You know, he had to tell everyone what to do, when to do it, which is obviously, you know, bullshit. <laughs> you, can't, you, you, can't, you, can't, you can't do that. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, I, I just find that to be a, a shame, really, in a way, because he's a man that I have great respect for. And, you know, it's, uh, it's incredibly frustrating in a way. But um, yeah. at the same time, it's working out pretty well for me. <laughs> yep. Um, obviously, you're you're across the line there, Richard. But uh, mm -hmm. what what have you made of what Mourinho's done, and comparatively to Pep Guardiola's first year at City? Um, it's it is a really hard question because I think it would be it'd be very easy to say he's not an elite level manager now because of his terrible year last year at Chelsea and the way things have gone this season. But just as with, just as we've got with Guardiola, I think there has to be an acceptance that part of what Mourinho was taken into United for was because there's no doubt about it. They made mistakes with their recruitment of managers post Alex Ferguson and the acceptance with Mourinho is that they were bringing in somebody who is, whatever you think of him, um, he is a winner. Like his career shows that he he drags people along with him. Um, he has a, a winner's mentality. He refuses to accept anything else, um, which maybe wasn't in the same way, wasn't present in Van Gaal and Moyes. But because of the way they'd been, 
United had taken a massive step backwards. So there's no doubt that he was never going to go in there and just win the league. Um, and this, you know, there was this fanciful idea at the start of the season that Guardiola and Mourinho being in the same city and, and back in the same league as each other was going to make the Manchester teams the top two. And really, it was never going to pan out that way because both had huge rebuilding jobs. Um, I think whether Mourinho's whether Mourinho still got it um, and whether he's still a top-level manager, to me, largely comes down to his mentality. Because his, as, as Rasmus said, his, tactically and how he understands the game, there are probably not many um, ever in football that really compare to it. I mean, what he did at a very young age for a manager, the success that he had with Porto and then Chelsea like, immediately was incredible. And then what he did at Inter Milan was to win the treble there was, was incredible. And then to go in, OK, Madrid probably didn't go as well as he hoped, but he won a league there. He won some cups. Whilst Barcelona were busy being the best team ever, he still competed with them. And then he came and won a league again at Chelsea and some cups. So he's not stopped being a brilliant manager, but his attitude to everything, at least what he conveys to the public, is massively different to how it used to be. He seems generally he puts himself across as an unhappy person. And I think that's really sad because Rasmus made the point that um, maybe some of the media reports around how much Mourinho has been upset about being looked over previously for the United job, maybe they were fanciful. I don't know, but he has always had um, uh, quite a soft spot for United. I think he has made quite public flirtations with them. I'm always, I always think of when they knocked Real Madrid out of, sorry, when Real Madrid knocked United out of the Champions League in what proved to be uh, Fergie's last season. And Mourinho's post-match press conference, it was like he was at a wake. He looked absolutely devastated and he sort of apologised for having won. Um, and I think he's always treated United with it with a deference that he didn't treat other clubs. And so it seems like to be there, he should be, he should be happy and I think it's quite sad to see a man who, um, you know, cards on the table, I don't really like as a person, but who has given so much to football and has made it so interesting um, and been so innovative and all the rest of it. He just, he doesn't seem to be enjoying what should be his dream job. Um, and I think that's quite sad. And it must convey to his players, like I'm sure the things he says in the dressing room are not the same as he says to the public. But I don't see how you could not be affected by it when everything that your manager says is is negative, it's bitching at the press and it's sniping at referees and it carries this idea of a of a agenda that's against him. Like he's carried it at every club that he's been at. Like and I used to think that was mind games. And now I'm not sure. I thought there was a period last season when he, he actually seemed to believe it and it's delusional mm. and it's not really dealing with the problem. And so everywhere he goes, he moans about fixture list pile up and he moans about referees. And he, like I say, you know, he moans. Any criticism of him means that there's a press agenda and he's not getting treated fairly. And it's ridiculous. And I, I find a lot of it embarrassing and like trying to be objective. It is not befitting of a club like Manchester United. Um, and it's just, I just find it all a bit, a bit pathetic. So does that mean that he's not an elite level manager anymore? Maybe. I don't know, but he doesn't carry himself like one in the way that he mm. used to. That's very interesting. Uh, to wrap this point, do we think that Jose Mourinho will be the manager of Manchester United beyond next season? 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think that they're preaching sort of, you know, this approach of, of patience. Obviously, they didn't have that with David Moyes, but that was different. Um, Mourinho and Moyes, it can't really be compared as to what they've achieved. I think I think they're gonna I think they're gonna spend big this summer again, and I think uh, Mourinho is gonna have uh, at least one more season there. But I don't know if he's gonna be as successful as as they hope for him to be with the amount of money they're pouring in to transfers. I think whether yeah whether he's there beyond next season will depend on larger and what he does next year. Won't it? If they if they spend big again. Which I think they will, as, as Rasmus says. I completely agree with that. If they spend big again and they were to, assuming they don't sneak into the top four this year, if they were to miss out a second year, then it would have to be seen as a failure. And the, and whether he would stick that out, I don't know. Whether his pride could handle that, I don't know. Um, it would be a huge dent to his ego. It could potentially finish him off as a top level manager, uh, and it would also command a huge rethink of everything that United do I think from from top to bottom really if they were to have two successive well it would be a third successive season of not qualifying for the Champions League with sort of the the so-called dream manager at the helm of it Um, I think it makes the summer very interesting but as to predicting what might happen beyond next season I think is very difficult interesting all right I think we're going to um skip match previews but i do think it's interesting we won't do a player that disappointed and one that impressed how about just the player that impressed the most the two matches combined and then uh, we'll wrap after that wow that's uh that's a tough one because oh no wait we played against city that was that's true mm-hmm. not not that tough um <laughs> yeah i've tried against... to pick that one too rasmus yeah <laughs> um against against city i thought Obviously, Hazard scored two goals, but um, I really want to give some credit to Pedro, who's who's been a completely different player this season compared to last season as well. So uh, against City, he worked immensely hard and obviously won the penalty that Hazard then missed but converted the rebound. Um, and against uh, against Bournemouth, again, he was just. You know, he brings so much energy as well into the side. And uh, he's got really quick feet. Uh, he might not have the same sort of creativity that Hazard does, but he's certainly got more creativity than, than everyone else but Hazard in the side. And uh, it's just brought a different dimension to a play to have him um, in this kind of form. I thought uh, I thought he was he was really good in both games. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with, with Pedro. Uh, yeah, for City, um, a certainly not a name that if I'd have predicted how this week was going to go, this isn't the name I'd have expected to give. Uh, but Fabian Delph has had a really good week, um, especially considering that the Chelsea game was the first game he started all season, uh, in the league at least. He started a couple of cup games. But I thought it was really impressive. Um, and then again, against Hull, um, personally, I thought he was if not man of the match, then he, he maybe would have been second in, in the list for that. Um, just breaking up play, distributing the ball really well, playing very intelligently um, for a player who would have every reason to be a bit short on confidence, having been overlooked so much this season, partly due to injuries, partly because Guardiola just not fancied him. Um, I thought he was brilliant and his attitude is fantastic. I mean, he gave some quotes this week where 
it would have been quite easy for him to say he wanted a new start and to go and get more more game time. And actually what he said was that he, he wanted to stay at City because he was enjoying working with a, a world-class management team and, and world-class players, um, that he enjoyed the atmosphere around the club and that he wants to improve and continue to learn. And that was a, it was a really nice thing to hear because you couldn't blame him for looking elsewhere. And obviously he got himself a goal with a, a really well-taken strike as well against Hull. Um, so... I think he's been he's been excellent, and he was good enough against Chelsea that, that Guardiola said he's made me realise that I've been wrong to uh, to play him so little, and to get a manager like Guardiola, uh, who is so resolute in his decision making, to to come out and say that, I think is an indicator of uh, of, of just how impressive he's been. So hopefully, um, I mean he's never going to be the the absolute first choice, but given that we rotate so much that we haven't played the same team two games running this season in the league. Um, hopefully it's going to give him a bit more game time uh, and, and I'm all for that, the way that he's been playing. And also uh, a quick honorary mention to David Silva, who you could have this conversation about every week, but he played his 300th game for City um, mm. yesterday and he's just a, a, continues to be a, a remarkable footballer. I mean, at 31, he, he's getting better uh, and, and he's a perfect Guardiola player and, and Pep absolutely loves him and there's been a, a lot of tributes in our local press and, and maybe a bit wider hailing him as City's greatest ever player which... he was fantastic against Chelsea in the first half particularly it was really uh, you know brilliant to watch even though obviously I, I didn't appreciate it that much at the time <laughs> but he was he yeah. was great yeah he is he's a, he's a it's genuinely like to, to watch him as a City fan, it is a privilege to see him play in a City shirt and that we have taken him for the, the best years of his career um, is, I mean, it genuinely, it sounds a bit twee, but it's an honour to, to watch him every week because he's he's never, you know, a bad game is a 7 out of 10. He's, he's just a, a magnificent footballer um, and 300 appearances at one club these days is, is pretty impressive. Uh, so he deserves a definite mention. Yeah, um, I obviously love David Silva a whole lot. Also, he's weirdly been getting more interceptions this year. I don't know what that's all about, unless he's just sitting further back. He does, yeah. Uh, he does, particularly when De Bruyne plays. The two of them seem to, to alternate quite a lot between getting quite deep. He, he seems to pick the ball up quite a lot in front of the back four. Um, it's less prominent uh, in games like, I mean, I don't know what the stats would say, but certainly watching him seemed a lot less prominent yesterday when De Bruyne wasn't playing with him. But they do seem to share that quite a lot. Yeah. Um, for Tottenham, the last uh, two matches have been pretty ridiculous. Seven goals scored in total. Um, despite <laughs> the fact that they were all scored within about uh, 94 minutes <laughs> with that crazy flurry at the end of the Swansea match. But um, the fact that it was so incestuous between Son Ali and Eriksen where they were all the ones with the assists and also all the ones with the goals over these two matches Son had three goals and an assist Ali had two goals and an assist Eriksen had one goal and two assists just in the last two matches if you go back to since Harry's been out so since the Southampton match uh there's only been four goal scorers for Tottenham it's been Son Ali Eriksen and Dyer with two um our defense is always spectacular kind of like uh Silva for Richard so we're just going to bypass them. Just know that Tottenham's defense continues to be incredible and statistically still the best in the league um, ever since uh, Chelsea forgot how to keep clean sheets. But um, so that's that's been very impressive. Uh, so obviously that trio, Son, Ali, Eriksen have been incredible. But I, I want to speak on Eric Dyer, really. 
because I said early in the season, and I've caught in some flack since then, because I said that in a 4-2-3-1, Eric Dyer is a better defensive midfielder than, Eric, than, than Victor Wanyama. And obviously, considering the season Wanyama's had, that led a lot of people to 1 plus 1 equals 3-ing at me, saying <laughs> Wanyama's better than Dyer, which I never touched on. My point was that in a 4-2-3-1, you need more from your two central midfielders than just being a destroyer. And Eric Dyer's quick thinking and good passing is more helpful than Wanyama's just search and destroy mentality. When we play three at the back with Wanyama covering the back line, Wanyama is so clearly away better, it's not even close. But in the 4-2-3-1, Dyer is incredible, and he's had to do it for the last about 120, 130 minutes, and he has been so good there. Um, and it just really is great to have a player that's as flexible as he is, that he's, he's – I was talking earlier this week with someone that I don't think Dyer is one of the 11 best players at Tottenham. I think he's exactly the 12th, but because of injuries or rotation or system changes, Dyer is always going to be in the 11. Um and the fact that he can slot in as many places as he can is terrific. Has he been as good as a center back this season as he was two years ago when that was his actual position? No. Um, but the fact that, you know, Wanyama can be gone two weeks. Wanyama, arguably one of the best signings of the summer uh, for what he's offered to our defense. But he can be gone for two weeks. Dyer steps in. It's not an issue. You know, we've missed Alderweireld. We've missed uh, Vertonghen at times this season. And Dyer just plugging in. You don't really have to worry about it. Keep up the defensive record has been uh, spectacular. So while... Uh, I don't think uh, of all of our England players, I think Dyer is the one with the lowest ceiling, but he also has a very high floor. You basically know what you're going to get from him these days. Um, and while it'd be very easy to talk about the goal scoring and the attacking prowess of Ali Eriksson and son and, and what they've done while Kane has been out has been tremendous. It's what's kept us. If Rasmus thinks there's still a title race in that title race. Um, but I think Dyer is a player that could easily get overlooked for his contributions to the team. All right, we've gone a little bit long, but I think we touched on a lot of really interesting stuff. But that is us for today. So uh, why don't you guys tell the folks where they can find you? Yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, you can ask any questions or comment on anything uh, on Twitter, where you find me at Chelsea Rumors. Yeah, cheers, guys. Um, I'm on Twitter at Richard the Burns. I write two articles a week for Yahoo Sports specifically on City and I am one of the rotating panellists on the Blue Moon podcast a dedicated Manchester City podcast released every Friday and they are on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast Yeah and I'm your host Kevin DeVries at Kevroff on Twitter I also host the uh, fantasy uh, podcast on this very same channel at EPL Roundtable you can find it EPL Roundtable on iTunes uh, I'm also the fantasy writer over at Goal.com, um, so be sure to check that out. I think we're going to aim for three or four articles this week, also in a week that I'm traveling to England. So uh, maybe maybe don't hold breaths on that, but in theory, I'm supposed to be getting three or four out. Um, talking Champions League, talking Premier League, so that should all be interesting. Uh, also, go check out TheEaglesBeak.com, where I try to get uh, fantasy articles in when I can. Um, but there's also really great content on there for all clubs, not just uh, Crystal Palace, but there's also... Obviously, terrific Crystal Palace content there. All right, thanks so much for joining us, guys. It's been a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.